Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 466, air date September 27th, 2019. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Shiva Ayodure. Um, over the last few weeks, many of you know I'm very active on Twitter. Uh, the other social media platforms, most of what I put on Twitter gets put out there. And uh, I've gotten lots and lots of emails, people saying, uh, Dr. Shiva, why don't you do more live videos? Uh, do educational videos, tell us about your positions, etc. So think about this video really as a kickoff uh, for a series of videos I'm going to do regularly to talk about many types of real problems and real solutions. As the title of this tweet says, we need to bring this country together, which means unite America around real problems and real solutions. And what we see taking place is the, the really the monopoly of the uh, establishment career politicians, the uh, establishment media, and also the establishment academics. And these three forces, and there's others obviously, you know, people have talked about the military-industrial academic complex, that's an older term that Eisenhower and Senator Fulbright talked about. But these forces essentially profit by dividing us as Americans. And they profit by never addressing the real problem. They always address a fake problem and they provide a fake solution. And a lot of their friends make a lot of money and you and I, uh, end up fighting with each other. And you brand yourself as a Republican, someone else brands themselves as a Democrat, or the white supremacists against the black nationalists, and, and there it goes. And um, those in power really love this. So, so I wanna really start um, giving a different way of looking at this and going back to what we call fundamentals of looking at what is a real problem and what are the real solutions. Now one of the things you need to understand is everyday working people, people particularly work with their hands, uh, people have to actually work with natural laws. Um, they don't have the luxury of making up fake problems and fake solutions. In fact, you know, when I ran in 2018 against um, the Republican Democratic Party, this year, as you know, I'm running for Shiva for Senate as a Republican, and at some point I'll talk about why, um, but nearly 100,000 people, five times more than any other independent candidate for Senate in the history of Massachusetts, uh, we got 100,000 votes. Well, most of those were from everyday working people when we looked at the data. Everyday working people, black or white, brown or yellow, whatever color you want to put to them, if you're working with your hands and you're solving real problems, you're an engineer or uh, you're a nurse or you're a plumber or electrician, etc., um, you are always having to face real problems and you always have to have a real solution. You can't fake your way around the stuff. Academics can fake their way around because they keep getting grants. They never have to really ever solve a scientific problem. Career politicians focus on getting reelected and the media just reports on the mayhem. But I can tell you that my entire life has always been about focusing on real problems and real solutions. You know, I've run many companies, you know, from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed, in addition to running a U.S. Senate camp, and I have many, many customers. And you can't BS your way through customers. If you have a problem and if you build an engineering system like a piece of software or a mechanical device or electrical device, it doesn't matter if not all your customers are unhappy with it. Even one customer being unhappy with it is an opportunity to solve a systemic problem. However, modern day academics, in fact, physicians, this is what's unfortunate, most medical doctors practice recipes. They don't really have an engineering systems approach to understanding the body. So in that model, when they hear a problem, um, they always try to assume it's an anomaly. But in the world of engineering, when you have a problem, for example, thousands of Boeing uh, 747 jets are out there. But if you get three complaints, 
that's enough for an engineer to say, let me go look at it, because that one complaint gives you the opportunity to perhaps unravel something significant in this engineering infrastructure. So um, that's what we need to get back to. We need to start respecting people who solve problems for a living. We need to start recognizing a career politician has one singular aim. They're basically supposed to be a puppet or a muppet, and their goal is to get elected, and the instant they get into office, within hours and seconds, they're trying to figure out how to get reelected. So they spend 80 to 90% of their time trying to get reelected. That's the way the system works. So that's why, if you notice on my campaign website, I'm gonna serve one term, but you're gonna get five times a senator from anyone else. Why do I say that? Well, if you have six, term, six years in a term, think about it, if you're spending 80% at minimum, some people say it's 100%, but let's give them 80% uh, of your time trying to get reelected, which means 4.8 years, which means the other 1.2 years you're working on legislation. And most of that legislation is to appease lobbyists and other people. So you're basically getting one uh, fifth of a senator. So my pledge is I'm only gonna run after I get elected for, and stay there only for one term. And that's gonna A, give me a deadline. I'm gonna also have to educate other uh, young people uh, to follow in the kinds of policies I want. That's the legacy we want to leave, not be in there you know, for 20, 40, 30 years. So let me talk today, when I talk about uniting America around real problems and real solutions, by the way, this is going to be a theme we're going to talk, talk about for a while, but to really launch um, in terms of the, 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 the foundational basis of our campaign, I want to really uh, talk to you about something uh, that I know very well, you know, uh, I'm a scientist, I'm also an engineer, and I'm also a fighter, a statesman, as we say, uh, trying to uh, bring people together. I could not have succeeded in any of my businesses if I didn't know how to bring people together, to bring employees and customers together. You go talk to a customer, you have all sorts of divisiveness. Um, selling a customer on a solution we have is a very, very um, sophisticated process of bringing people together and then uh, having them buy our solution then pay for it and be our customer. These are not easy things, but entrepreneurs like myself, successful people, know that it's all about uniting people around real problems and real solutions. Now, uh, almost 50 years ago, or more, 60, 50 to 60 years ago, John Kennedy gave a very um, a, a important speech, probably very few people have heard about it, because he gave it to the National Academy of Sciences. And in that speech, President Kennedy uh, basically was saying, look, the problems of the world have become very, very sophisticated, which means, you know, it's not like something you just can do it on the back of a napkin anymore. And because of the sophistication of these problems, you know, transportation systems, healthcare systems, um, bi biotechnology, go down the list. And because of the sophistication of these problems, we need you, and he was talking to thousands of scientists gathered in a room, we need you to help us out. And in that speech, he makes a very interesting observation. The assumption is that when you, these, you scientists, help us out, that you are being disinterested third parties, objective third parties, disinterested objective third parties. What does that mean? That means you don't have an interest in the conclusion. You're, you, you're not being motivated by money. You're not being motivated by your own existence for the future, like, for example, getting tenure or getting grants. Um, and that was in 1963. Um, so what's important is that concept of Yes, we as a society collectively are going to go to you as scientists uh, for our help and you are supposed to be disinterested objective third parties. And I think this is the heart of the issue on 
nearly every one of the problems that we've been split on, I mean, there's an anti-vax, vax crowd on the vaccine, pro-GMO, anti-GMO on the genetic engineering of food, pro-climate, anti-climate, and I could keep going on. But those three topics I bring up, you know, they come because these are all scientific issues, actually. They are not really issues of, uh, frankly, debate and divisiveness. We need to go down to the facts and we rely on these objective disinterested third parties. However, what's happened is the so-called disinterested objective third parties are not such. Um, and that's the real heart of the real problem because the news media, some people call it the fake news media, most journalists today do very little journalism. They're not out there with their you know, little sticky notes and going through libraries, getting their APA references and interviewing people. Very little of that goes on. What they do is they go cut and paste what some expert says, okay? Or an academic. So the, the, the I don't even want to say journalist, the reporter of news is simply cutting and pasting something that they're getting from an academic or an expert. And because maybe some title is there, maybe the Harvard logo is on the background or the Yale logo or the Stanford logo, um, and, and some, some of these people are very theatrical, right? bow ties, uh, they look like quote unquote scientists, you know, like the, the mad scientists, therefore um, the theatrics are, we should believe them. But when you start really looking at these issues, you start finding that around 19, uh, about six years after Kennedy gave that speech, um, in late 60s, early 70s, a Mansfield Amendment uh, was passed. And that amendment fundamentally changed science. Um, science went from science to academia. Why do I say that? Well. You have to understand, prior to that, we, had a hu we have a huge military budget, and a very small piece of that, a sliver of that, was given to do basic research. Okay, so it came from the military, but that little sliver was unnoticed. No one even thought about it, so some very cool research used to take place at Bell Labs or, or Princeton Advanced Institute. These were serious scientists exploring some very fundamental questions in science. That small sliver was a lot relative to the military budget, but no one noticed it because it was, was under the umbrella of the military. And so sort of an irony in this sense, the military, which is about um, defense and killing and war, actually had this sort of irony there. However, after the Mansfield Amendment was passed, even that sliver of money went to a very political organization called the National Science Foundation. And why? Because during Vietnam or po during, uh, as Vietnam War was ending, it was decided that uh, most of the military, uh, that the military budget could not fund basic science unless it was for weaponry. So this little sliver of a large budget, which no one noticed, but was a significant portion of the NSF budget, um, went to the NSF, which is, I mean, this is just a known fact, it's a highly political organization. Um, policy and science and politics all get in involved. So therefore the academics, uh, were already starting to move in this sort of, uh, uh, what I call the oldest profession, uh, model, um, started uh, recognizing that they're all fighting for grant money um, because of the limited amount of funds. Um, and by the way, some of you may know, in order to be quote unquote successful in academia, what's marked by that is you get tenure. So from the time you start at a university, let's say you get your, your low level professor, you basically have a period of seven years to publish, to get other people to recognize what you publish, that's called a citation, which means you gotta uh, motivate your peers to say, oh yeah, you do good research. And that itself is a whole politics there. 
because you may be doing great research and your peers may not like it. So you're, there's this very interesting political game that takes place. So you have seven years to get tenure, otherwise you're out. So in those seven years, people are fighting to get grants, tooth and nail, they'll do whatever it takes, and they, will, uh, and they have to get citations. It's not only that you publish, but you gotta get your friend to say, oh yeah, um, you're great. And so there's a lot of unfortunate um, uh, you know, kissing that takes place in all sorts of ways to get that process to occur. And as a part of this, what we've done is the scientist who actually has maybe wild, new, innovative ideas can get disenfranchised out of this. Why? Because it, let's say someone is the 800-pound gorilla, the, the guy who everyone bows down to in cancer research or Alzheimer's research, and you as a young investigator come up with something which is counter to that person, and it's real, well, if you can't get it published, because they have a thing called peer review, which is set as a high standard, which is a whole other discussion I'll do some, at some point. Um, as an aside, Einstein did not publish one of his papers peer-reviewed, because he never thought you could get innovative research in the peer review model, because things are controlled. So we have a, a highly controlled academic process, highly incentivized to um, making all sorts of friendships more than real science. So this is the environment that science has gone to. And um, so I can give you some examples and you know to, to think about, we'll go into this deeper, because at the heart of this is we have an academic system which now practices, unfortunately, as a good friend of mine, um, uh, who just uh, left MIT, was a professor for many years, it's become the oldest profession, meaning it's paid to play. It is not the environment of the vision that John Kennedy had when he spoke in 1963 to the National Academy of Sciences. So for example, if you take the topics that I've talked about, let's take genetic engineering, GMOs. Um, you know, everyone was split into these two camps, pro-GMO or anti-GMO. Well, when I got involved in two, 2014, um, just to level set this, um, I have four degrees from MIT. I say this to let you know that these, when I, in engineering particularly, engineering is a very hard um, uh, field, hard meaning not only difficult to learn, but you can't BS your way through. You, you create something, um, you can't try to manipulate people saying, oh, everything's fine. Well, if a plane falls out of the sky or your software doesn't work, you have screaming customers. Science is a little bit different than engineering. Science is you gather data and you literally plot it on some curve and you fit a line to a curve. Well, you can manipulate how that curve is fit so you can get very different kinds of results. But engineering is where the rubber meets the road. You can talk all the stuff you want, but if what you build using the principles of science do not work, it doesn't matter. So engineering, the engineering field is Probably the best I can say is my friends were plumbers, electricians. They know engineering because if they build something and you know uh, something breaks or they don't ground a wire properly, you get to start a fire. You can't BS your way in the area of engineering, and and if you do, you're going to get caught pretty quickly. But in science, you can BS your way because you're coming up with theories. In engineering, you're act act actively practicing nature's laws. So if you look at something like genetic engineering in 2014, uh, by the way. In 2014, I had spent, by that time, I'd spent nearly multiple decades of my life, including my PhD work, creating technology that could use engineering systems principles to understand the biological, uh, uh, to, to bring engineering understanding to, at the molecular level, to understand how 
uh, molecular mechanisms worked in your body. And that resulted in 2007 in, in my building a very powerful technology called Cytosolve. Cytosolve, you can go look at it, C-Y-T-O-S-O-L-V-E, was something that people thought was impossible to create. Uh, the best analogy I can give is we don't uh, simply throw test pilots in airplanes. We don't throw passengers in airplanes. Uh, in fact, even before we do wind tunnel testing on airplanes, we do modeling on the computer. So today, when it comes to building drugs or looking at biological processes, it's still sort of shoot from the hip. Uh, we go uh, do stuff in a test tube and kill animals, but we don't start with understanding the engineering principles. So Cytosol is a very powerful technology that I created for my PhD, which allows us to look at all the work that's been done, extract the mechanistic components, connect them together to really try to re reverse engineer nature. It's not perfect, but you get a much more engineering systems approach. And using that, we can actually start looking at real problems and real solutions. So in 2014, there was a very interesting front page article in the MIT Technology Review, which is one of the most eminent um, you know, technology journals in the world. Uh, I was uh, honored to be on, on it for many years ago for an, an invention I created called EchoMail. But on this January 2014, the front page of the article said, buy fresh, buy GMOs, like making fun of the buy fresh, buy local movement. And as you read this article, it was essentially a very convincing article to the layman that we need genetically engineered foods, otherwise the world is going to starve. So the elements of that article were a, a, a massive amount of fear if we don't support the advancement of genetic engineered foods. Now, I didn't know a lot about this. I went into it very, um, uh, frankly, naive in the sense I wasn't pro or anti-GMO. I didn't have a horse in the race. But over a period of several years, we applied this very powerful technology um, and to look at all the molecular mechanisms. And what we discovered was that, particularly in soy, 97% of the soy in the, in the world is genetically engineered, that when you do a genetic modification, a little itsy weeny teeny weeny genetic change, which the academics had told us was no big deal, that our research found that it actually had a huge systems-wide effect in down-regulating a very important antioxidant called glutathione and would accumulate formaldehyde. And by the way, we published a series of four papers in the same pa uh, journals that Monsanto and USDA published. And um, the existing academic um, establishment got very upset because remember, who funds a lot of biological research? Big Ag, um, you can look up Cornell who funds them or Iowa State University, it's Big Ag. So this was essentially going against their narrative um, and what we showed was in fact our results were later validated by a group in Leeds which had actually grown the soy plant and they too found that in the actual soy plant there was 250% less glutathione, this antioxidant, as our model predicted. So there, the real issue here from our conclusion was that there was no safety assessment standards because the way that safety, quote unquote safety was done, by the way, the US FDA takes a hands-off approach to genetically engineered foods, is if you and I create, want to create a genetic blueberry, we simply tell the FDA, self-reporting, that we did some safety research and the FDA says, thanks Bill and Bob for letting us know you did that and then you can take it to market. There's no independent, I repeat, this is gonna blow your mind, there's no independent safety assessment standards of genetic engineered foods, okay? And in fact, you can go to the FDA site and at the last time I was there about a year ago, there were about 147 different safety consultation letters. The FDA doesn't take a position. It's arm's length, it's self-reporting. What our research showed was if glutathione 
was used as a criteria for assessment, there would be a substantial difference between the genetically engineered version of soy and the, and the non-genetically engineered version. And the notion here is that the genetically engineered and the non-genetically engineered are about the same. Therefore, since they're about the same, there's, there's no safety issues. So I give you that example to show that we applied a much more systems-based scientific approach to show that there was a fundamental difference between the organic and the GMO version of soy. And our conclusion was that we need to have safety assessment standards. Now, this is something I believe can unite America. This is not, you know, I'm a uh, hippie, you know, er granola crunching and I want to stop all of, you know, genetic engineered foods, nor is it someone saying, yeah, I'm a scientist, we need to save the world, what are you talking about? It's like whether you're pro or anti-GMO, there are no safety assessment standards for genetically engineered foods, period. And before we go start manipulating these very complex systems called nature, let's develop those standards. So that's an example, real problem, real solution. Now you can apply the same thing, it fits very nicely with what's going on with the vaccine debate. Uh, if you go to my Twitter feed, you'll see a lot of people uh, very excited um, um, on both sides, people calling me all sorts of names, who are you, um, you, you know, MDs um, who think uh, with a lot of arrogance, and by the way, we've invited them to have conversations, and at the other side, people happy that someone like myself from the uh, anti-vax committee, a MIT engineer, uh, an accomplished scientist, is questioning this. But what am I really questioning? I'm not pro or anti-vax, I'll repeat that, I'm pro-science. And what that means is, when you look at the actual papers, which I've started to look, um, and when you actually start looking at them, you will find that there's no really risk assessment models for vaccines. In fact, of the 30 vaccines that are promoted for kids zero to 18, only one of them had a double-blind placebo-controlled study, and even that study was quite, um, I would say, to put it mildly, fraudulent, the way the results were reported. And again, this is not me being pro or anti-vax. And as a part of that, as a scientist on October 26th, I've called a conference, an international conference, to build vaccine risk assessment models based on engineering systems principles. Now, why do I say that? You see, in civil engineering, we build bridges. In electrical engineering, we build power plants. In ocean engineering or naval engineering, we build ships. Those are engineering activities. And in those engineering activities, consistently there's an engineering systems approach to risk. You look at the entire supply chain. Well, in biological engineering, which is my field of expertise, I have a PhD in, vaccines are a product, like bridges are, of biological engineering. And when we look at the entire supply chain, from everything I've seen, there's not an engineering systems approach. You have MDs, by the way, some of them are very bright, but most of them are essentially following a recipe. Um, you could robotize some of this. So for them, because they don't really understand the engineering principles of the body, their reaction is to be arrogant and saying, even if one mother or two mothers brings up an issue, to call them insane or um, you know, brand them. In engineering, we don't do that. If one customer says a, a, a customer says a Boeing 747 is falling out of the sky, or if I have a million customers for my piece of software and one customer calls angry, I go look at it. So my point is we need to again look at a engineering systems approach um, to vaccine risks because we don't understand the risks. And finally, let me give you another problem. So what, again, we can bring all of us together. We can unite America by recognizing we need to know risk assessment 
in the area of vaccines, in the area of genetically engineered foods. We need to build safety assessment standards. Climate, um, I was very saddened to see uh, this uh, well-meaning girl being essentially used and exploited by members of the press and also members of academia. You know, look, um, there are about $2 billion in climate impact grants today. You put anything with climate change, you can get funded. A very good friend of mine, Dr. Richard Lindzen, uh, who is a professor at MIT, he and I've had many conversations. Um, about two years ago, you may see the video, which is below on my tweet feed. I put out a thing saying why Donald Trump was right to get out of the Paris Accords. Doesn't matter whether you're Republican or Democrat, pro or anti-Trump, that's not the issue. The bottom line is the Paris Accords allows China and India to double their pollution, in the case of China, from 11 billion carbon tons to 22 billion carbon tons. The issue is to lower pollution. And when it comes to climate, which this is, I've talked about this before, climate is a large-scale, multi-dimensional, multi-scale, temporal and spatial systems problem. And to reduce this very complex fluid dynamics problem, which is what it is, of the ocean as a fluid, a turbulent fluid, and the atmosphere as a fluid to one variable CO2 is probably one of the biggest frauds in scientific history. And even at MIT, which by the way, the leadership at MIT supported Jeffrey Epstein after knowing he raped women and children and was convicted of that, they took money from him. So what we have now is at the highest levels of academia, we have people taking money, even though that a kid was getting injured in the case of Jeffrey Epstein's case, because they want money because they want to live out this, <laughs> they want to further their career, it's all money, because in seven years they get a job for life. That's what this is really about. And so 120 professors, when Dick Lindzen um, also said that President Trump should not be involved in the Paris Accords, vilified him. Dick Lindzen is one of the most respected scientists, uh, applied mathematician, physicist, etc. He know that, by the way, there's no field called climate science. It's a made up field. Climate science is actually fluid mechanics. It's radiative physics. That's what it is. There's no field called climate science. So what you see is that the climate issue is really about lowering pollution. It is not about lowering CO2. And I'll give everyone a homework assignment. What happens when the CO2 levels go below 220 parts per million? Think about it. Okay, but in closing, you know, our campaign, Shiva for Senate, is going to lead a completely new discourse. A guy like me, in many ways, I, with all humility, I have great respect for the founders of this country, who are scientists, inventors, and I consider uh, them to be one of them. You know, they. I don't have to do this. I have a very successful company, but we precisely need people like our founders, like myself who have training in science and engineering, plumbers, electricians, nurses, everyday working people have to deal with nature's laws to serve this country. That's what we need. Career politicians, they know nothing except how to get elected. They're Muppets and puppets. That's what they really are. The academics have become Muppets and puppets. That's what they are. And our you know, news, um, news talkers have become Muppets and puppets. And the issue is who has their hand you know, running this muppetry and this puppetry. And what you realize, it's not you or me, it's not working people. It's, it's, it's a small set of people that I like to call aristocrats. So these elections are not about black versus white. You know, it's not about Republican versus Democrats. It's about the aristocracy who we thought we kicked out. 
1776. Remember, many of them did not leave. They did not get on the boat, go back to England. They settled here at universities like Harvard, hunkered down in places like Lexington and Concord, and they rebranded themselves as liberals, who were so liberal that they're into inclusivity and compassionate. Many of these people are the most aristocratic people. They've become the elite of this country. They are the academics, and they are the ones who are holding on to power, and they control these Muppets. And what I ask you is, I'm sure the mainstream media will never cover us. As many of you know, when we ran our campaign against Elizabeth Warren, they came to her defense even though she is a racist. She used race to, to advance herself. They never brought that out because the mainstream media makes money from those same Muppets. They make money from very large elements of the military industrial academic complex. So our campaign is going to rely on you and us. We are the working people. And the working people of this country need to recognize that they have nothing in common with a Joe Kennedy. They have nothing in common with an Ed Malarkey. These people are career politicians. They've never ever had to actually work and struggle and face many of the issues. And I'm talking to poor people, uh, black and white, all of you working people who want to go start, white working people want to blame black people, stop doing that. And black people stop blaming white people. Because, because that's what they want you to do. The real enemy here is the aristocracy. I'll leave you with this. Charlie Baker, who's a Republican governor of Massachusetts, endorsed Democrat Joe Kennedy. Bill Weld, who's running against Donald Trump, who's a Republican governor of Massachusetts, endorsed a Democrat. They don't even want to mention my name. I'm a pariah, you know? I'm the low caste, I'm the untouchable that they don't want to touch because I threaten their existence, you threaten their existence. And it's time that we brought back America to what it is. America was meant to be a country of meritocracy, hardworking people who struggled. These folks are anti-Americans. And the Shiva for Senate campaign is about you. And I'm you, I'm one of you. I grew up in New Jersey among everyday working people. I grew up, you know, in India among people who had nothing. We are one and we need to unite this country. Real problems, real solutions. Again, this is Dr. Shiva Ayadure, Shiva for Senate. I look forward to coming back to you shortly.